what weather it is. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's the food or something of that nature. It's been awful. I felt horrid this whole week. I've got ham and pea soup in the crock pot right now that I'm just staring at, wanting to fast forward the timers so that I can eat that. So that's what I'm looking forward to this evening. Uh, and I apologize for the listeners if the auditory experience I, i've got sort of a, an extra bit of gravel in yes it is i I'm was gonna say that we've boosted your gravel <laughs> levels yeah. about 10 percent i yeah. are you on on any kind of cold medicine can we expect any really fun hot takes from you like daniel vogelback will be the starting <laughs> first baseman um I, I mean, I think you I should just say that you. anyway and like just <laughs> do it under the guise of being on lots of flu medicine yeah, I, uh, all of my grandiose statements are purely due to the Sudafed PE that I've just been mainlining to try and stay co- or just functional in any way. But fantastic! Uh, <laughs> I may I may be laying low. I guess is what <laughs> okay. I'm saying. But that's well, okay because we have we have a guest who. Yeah, why don't you why don't you introduce the guest since you came up with the great uh, <laughs> segue and everything. Um, Our guest today is Casey Boguslaw. Um, Casey, you are, uh, you've been uh, all over the place, but uh, you're now uh, working for Forward Mile MLB. Um, Where where else, I guess, can we we find you, Casey? So I I did run a website for a couple years called RO Baseball and did actually... Stopped that endeavor last year, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, life got in the way a little bit, and uh, it was just becoming too much of my slate, and I wanted to focus more on just writing and doing the analytics that I often find myself doing while sitting in my cubicle. So uh, <laughs> I decided to, unfortunately, end that project. But that group of guys is great, and there's still, a, you know, that the site is gone, but all those guys are 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 still great writers and they're all around but uh yeah forward mile found me a couple months ago and started me uh writing there and to prepare for the launch which was last wednesday and uh it's been pretty successful so far that's Um, fantastic yeah so it's it's more than just mlb too it's all all the sports um even like even like (laughs) golf i I believe is on there i mean i haven't even checked out everything that's on there yet yeah, there's fantasy golf, I guess. I, what? I, I, Impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Impossible. <laughs> that's, that's what I see, at least on the on the things that pop up on my All phone right. now when I get forward mile alerts. But, um, yeah, and so, yeah, there's a team of baseball writers. You know, we're kind of half fantasy. It's a pretty heavy fantasy-associated uh, website. But there's a this other section of the website that is just going to be writing about everyday baseball and doing analytics. Of course, some of my stuff that uh, I've developed quite a following of fantasy baseball players because they like some of the stuff that I tweet out and I, it does help them with fantasy. It helps myself with fantasy, but uh, (laughs) I I won't necessarily be writing solely about, you know, DFS strategies or anything like that. Uh, I'll be doing more big picture stuff at four miles. So that's what? about where all I am at. Uh, my stuff is – I'll still blog like a random thing here and there on just my Medium site. So medium.com slash Casey Bogoslaw. So um, some of your fantasy stuff is – even if you're not directly writing about fantasy, you are dealing with a lot of 
um, the Statcast data, right? The the new level of data that we have, which which can be helpful in making objective decisions about one's fantasy teams, right? Absolutely. I probably some of my friends would say that I've developed a somewhat obsession with the barrel stat, but uh, I've done a lot of stuff with barrels over the last couple of years since uh, the, those guys over at MLB Advanced Media came up with the term. Uh, I should I explain what a barrel is? Yeah, let's Absolutely. let's let's start. We'll work through each of your like pet projects, your hobby horses. Sure. But I think <laughs> definitely I got to know you while you were using the barrel stat. Like you brought that to my attention. So yeah, let's start there. So yeah, when Stackass kind of was giving us uh, ad, uh, you know batted ball data on every single play that which included exit velocity and launch angle, they they created the best combination of those two items uh, to find the best batted ball outcome. And where they decided on was the combination that led to at least a 500 batting average on the total population and a 1,500 slugging percentage. And so basically it's the best thing that you can do at the the plate. It's kind of, uh, you know, it goes against... You know, anything weather-wise, anything stadium-wise, if you hit a batted ball at Coors Field or if you hit a batted ball that are barrels at um, Safeco, uh, it's the same exact kind of way that the ball is coming off the bat. So it's even across the, all playing fields, which is kind of really why I liked it a lot. And uh, I went ahead and with a couple guys um, helped create the Twitter account at, at MLB Barrel Alert. And that auto... Uh, tweets out every single time a barrel is hit real time uh it, it shoots out all of the data that you would want to know about that batted ball um and uh, we've developed quite a following there and uh had a lot of fun we were doing it manually for like the first month which was Oof. insane we, we just had a slack chat room and be like uh okay i'll tweet out aaron judges uh you guys got the next one um <laughs> Did you maybe just have to have one person devoted to Aaron Judge? Yeah, yeah. We had one guy that was solely dedicated to just watching Aaron Judge. Um, But a programmer did eventually approach us. uh, Yeah, it was a couple weeks into the season and said, hey, I could do this for you guys, uh, you know, to do it automatically. And we said, ha, for free? And the guy said, yeah, sure, why not? (laughs) So it was great. Blessings to the programmers. Thank that guy a lot uh, at Canock. <laughs> that's all I know him by. It, it's like one of those crazy, you know, programmer things. But uh, yeah, thank God for him. So we didn't have to do that. And then everyone can have it uh, even faster than we were tweeting them out. So uh, yeah, that that's that's where I started. And uh, I did a lot of stuff. So uh, yeah, then I guess the next step we could go to if you want. I, I developed Barrel FIP. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, this is where so the the as far as barrels, I mean, I'm sure Nelson Cruz passed under your nose a fair amount of times for Mariners hitting barrels. Um, Maybe not as much as some others, but unfortunately I feel like barrel FIP is a, is a time where we pop up. Am I correct in that? (laughs) Well, yeah, positively or negatively. The 2017 Mariners, I feel like uh, I I spent an awful lot of time looking at charts that you sent out with a lot of Mariner pitcher names in red. Yes, yes, unfortunately so. Uh, So what I did with – this was uh, the previous offseason when I was kind of just looking at barrel charts and, you know, uh, barrels were always on my mind. And this was even, I think, before I came up with the barrel alert account. Um, I was reading a lot of stuff about FIP over the offseason for some reason, and I know that 
you know, in certain areas of our analytical world, people were frowning on FIP. And, you know, once we were kind of learning more about StatCast, that pitchers do kind of have a little bit more of a control over, you know, what type of batted balls are hit against them. People didn't want FIP to be as basic as it was, which was, uh, you know, just strikeouts, walks, and home runs. And then, like I just explained with what barrels do, since they treat every batted ball fairly, that was a little bit more, I guess, fair uh, than just looking at home runs because obviously if you're at Coors you're going to allow more home runs than you know anywhere else so I decided to just kind of simply replace uh, the home run in the FIP calculation with barrels and uh, adjusted the coefficients as such uh, to make that um, you know make a little bit more sense as far as where the linear weights were and uh, started tweeting out those every day that, that uh, every starting pitcher that was um, going to play, pitch that day, I sent out their uh, barrel FIP data. And that's kind of where I got a lot of my following. And we mentioned before, especially from a fantasy standpoint, people wanted to know for their daily fantasy or what starters to pitch on their team that day. Uh, you know, I was pitch, I was put posting, you know, their season results and their last 30 days because those, of course, certainly do fluctuate, you know, as most pitching stats, statistics do. Um, and, yeah, a lot of people really liked it. I got a lot of feedback and uh, everything, you know, that I've gotten back is people just want more. So I'm hoping to be able to continue giving the people what they want. That's very kind of you. Have you seen any um, with replacing the home runs with the barrel stat has that what's the biggest change that you've seen which player was the most affected by that um has this at barrel fip or barrels uh either of them revealed anything to you that maybe um players we wouldn't think of necessarily um what what has been revealed to you through these stats Two pop off the top of my head, and maybe it's my Chicago roots, but uh, from a pitching standpoint, Jeff Samarja, you know, who spent hmm. time on both areas, uh, both sides of town here, um, had a really terrible season. If you just look at his ERA, and Barrel Fip really liked him all season. And uh, I wrote a pretty lengthy piece, I want to say in like July or August, about what exactly was going on, but he was having some. Bad luck, but, you know, I was basically saying you kind of do have to believe in Jess Marger going forward because he wasn't allowing hard hit balls. And um, I think something we will obviously get to at some point in this uh, podcast is the Giants had a terrible outfield behind him, a really big outfield, as you guys know, yeah. at, at AT&T. So that has a huge effect on him as well. That's not directly related to barrels, but I, I'm kind of getting, you know, ahead of myself here. But, it, you know, it is all kind of they all correlate a little bit that he wasn't getting hit very, very hard. Um, and that's what barrel showed me from a hitter standpoint. Uh, Kyle Schwarber had a very weird year. Um, a lot of people were very down on him and I actually was looking at a uh, fantasy page today and they had Kyle Schwarber outside the top hundred players, which I oh. totally disagree with. Uh, you know, if you're in a fantasy draft coming up in the next couple of months, don't wait that, that long to draft yeah. Kyle Schwarber. <laughs> he, he can mash the ball. He hits a ton of barrels. Um, he had one of the best barrel percentages. I look at it from a plant appearance uh, standpoint. He also walks a ton too, which is you know just good for you know actual baseball as well. I, I think he should be fine. I don't know if batting leadoff screwed with his head or what it was, but I really just think it was a slump. And I think people <laughs> overreacted because they were the world champions and right, it right. was a big deal. So you know the barrel stuff kind of lets you see between the lines there, and, and you know. 
Whenever sometimes, a, yeah, a, a scout like Zelensky to uh, compares you to Babe Ruth, I, I feel like that you're <laughs> carrying you're carrying that right. Um, expectations for Schwarber. I didn't know that that scouting report existed, except that I had done um, some different research in looking at other players who were compared to Babe Ruth, and the Schwarber thing popped up, and I was like, oh. So I'd always kind of wondered where that weight of expectations on him came from, or why it seemed like Schwarber was talked about a little bit differently. And, um, you know, when you invoke Babe Ruth's name, I think you invoke a whole bunch of uh, baggage with that. Yeah. I mean, think about the path that that guy's been on. He had this incredible rookie season and got called up, you know, much earlier than a lot of those guys do. Mm-hmm. Then he misses an entire season yeah. due to a devastating injury. But then he comes back in the World Series out of nowhere and has a great couple games when he's out there. And then he had all this pressure, and he was put in the leadoff position right on opening day. I mean, that's huge. You're the leadoff hitter for the world champions. There's going to be pressure. I don't think anyone could really get past that. So – you're predicting maybe some bounce back years for guys who struggled a little last year with shark and Schwarber. Um, let, because this is a Mariners podcast and because (laughs) I am a small minded person, um, what, (laughs) what popped out to you about the, uh, about the Mariners pitchers last year regarding barrel fip? Other than Ariel Miranda being in the red pretty much constantly all the time, every time you tweeted out one of those charts. Yeah, those home runs that he allowed were mostly barrels, so it wasn't like Barrel Fip was really saving him much. Uh, those he, he couldn't cheat the system um, with, with looking at, at, at the home runs that he allowed just because they were hit uh, always pretty pure off the bat. Um the one thing I will mention, though, Kate, you know, I, I think that you are already very encouraged by this guy, but I know that for a pretty good chunk of the season, James Paxson was the best pitcher in barrel fip uh, in all of Major League Baseball. Him and Sale were kind of alternating, uh, I know, for a, a, a large part of the season as well. Uh, of course, kind of when, obviously, you know, we, we have to mention the injury, but that took him kind of where I had the minimum inning set. Um, but he still obviously had a very good season, barrel flip wise. Um, you know, even better than his ERA, better than his uh, FIP as well. Um, so, I mean, just a great season all around. Obviously, those big strikeout guys um, are going to rank high, but he was also not allowing barrels. Only less than 2% of the time was he allowing a barrel. Oh, that is just. <laughs> that's a beautiful sentence. Mm-hmm. I understand why people get things tattooed on them suddenly. Uh, two, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> smaller than two percent barrel rate. Mm, yes, uh, um, stitch that in a sampler. Um, so, Casey, one of the things, do, you know, especially with barrel fip and and with all these things, it seems like it has seemed like through your writing and through the research that you've done, um, you're someone who likes it when the ball is put in play. Or, or at least finds baseball more engaging when that is. is. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, especially when you put it out like that. Um, you know, of course, strikeouts <laughs> are exciting, but uh, I think everything else that happens once the ball is put in play, um, it just kind of, uh, you know, exponentially adds mm. to the fun of the game. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and in in that vein, you know, one of the things I think that you and I first interacted with, and one of the things that both Kate and I found very engaging was uh, a lot of the research in addition to what you did with pitchers was uh, 
research on the impact of outfield defense and uh, you know the sort of value that you can accrue from uh, I guess saving runs on line drives and fly balls um, and how we saw essentially uh, this year a couple team you know the some of the best teams were teams that didn't even have to worry about that because so many baseballs were just flying over the fence. Uh, was that, was that sort of a frustrating, uh, I guess, turn of events? Or how how was that to to sort of watch things play out? Yeah, and actually, you know, that's kind of why the Mariners struck my fancy for most of the season. You know, mm-hmm. I, I am a White Sox fan, and so last season it was kind of like, okay, I'm excited for the White Sox rebuild, but I need this, another team to kind of just, you know, be a fan of while the White Sox go through what they're going through. Obviously, they weren't competing. So it was the Mariners that I attached to just because – I was really excited the way that that team was assembled, and (laughs) (laughs) the only bandwagon fan. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I know, Uh, but no, yeah, I think you know the way that Depoto made this team was to get the best outfield possible. And I wrote an article that was at the Hardball Times last off season Mm -hmm. that basically was looking at, hey, look, let's look at the last two teams that won the World Series. It was the Kansas City Royals who really didn't have much to hang their hat on other than they hit a lot of contact on the ball and they played amazing defense. And then the Cubs played even better defense than they did the following year. So I kind of was looking at who was going to be this team in 2017 that could kind of come out of really, you know, be a pretty even team, you know, okay pitching, okay hitting, but are really carried by an excellent offense or excellent defense. And I thought Mm -hmm. Seattle could certainly be in that pack. But then what we saw, you guys mentioned, I, you know, I don't know if the ball was necessarily the reason that the Mariners were allowing a lot of home runs. When you go through, they didn't need a lot of help. That's what I'll say. How many? How many pitchers were used? You know, how many you guys? Starters. That was just starters. How many? Forty-eight pitchers. Forty-eight pitchers. Whatever it was is a record. I know. And I know Depoto on his podcast was saying that he was just going through 40-man roster moves because he just had to bring up an arm to use. And, of course, mm-hmm. these guys aren't going to be strikeout pitchers. They're going to be putting the ball in the play, and a lot of the times the balls were going to be leaving. <laughs> in yeah. and out of play. <laughs> right. So, you know, a defense can only be <laughs> it can only be as great as it, uh, you know, is allowed to be if the ball is actually uh, av- available to catch. So, <laughs> but... You know, these numbers that I've been putting together that I, and I've written a couple articles here in the last week or so, the Mariners had a great defense. And they even, they did more impact than you guys would probably even think about it because, you know, the focus was on the home runs. And, and of course, you know, everything else that went, uh, you know, pointing in the down direction for the Mariners. But they still did have a really excellent defense. That part of Depota's plan certainly worked. Um, but no one can predict that many injuries. I think if... If they do have some health, you know, I know that the outfield's a little bit different. I'm sure we'll get into that. But, you know, they still do have a lot of good parts to put out there. Well, let's talk a little bit about the next metric that you are really excited about or are working on developing, um, which I think you call catch probability. Is that right? So or catch percentage? I, catch percentage. Probability? So. Stackass does have a catch probability metric, and that's why I, I didn't want to yes, catch step on their toes. Sorry. Even though I step on their toes a lot with barrels, but <laughs> <laughs> and, and percentage is because I'm really kind of making this statistic pretty basic as far as 
I'm looking at a population of batted balls, and I just kind of limited it to line drives and fly balls, mm-hmm. which are defined by Baseball Savant using launch angle and exit velocity. Um, and so I can kind of easily bucket them. And I'm only looking at balls in play, and I'm basically saying, did this outfield catch it and did it not? Um, and, and that's as easy as it is. I'm not going into range factors. Uh, I'm definitely not looking at arms or anything like that, the arm strength of the outfielders. I'm just kind of looking at which outfield caught the most balls um, you know, that, that, that were available to be caught. Uh, and another thing on top of that is this has kind of always been a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, but and it's kind of a theory that I have is that I really think the entire outfield unit is what makes for mm. the best outfield. Um, mm. uh, one thing, I, I, I don't know why I keep talking about the Cubs, especially as a White Sox fan. My White Sox <laughs> fan friends are going to <laughs> yell at me. But, you know, Dexter Fowler didn't have great metrics in that World Series year, but they had such a good outfield defense that it just kind of made sense as a unit. And I think that the fact that he had Jason Hayward next to him certainly would probably have some impact on the the amount of balls that he has to get to. He knows that he doesn't have to cover that, you know, whatever that segment of right field because Jason Hayward's going to get to it. And that's going to have an impact. So that's just an example of what I think that an outfield unit can have that those guys that are playing next to you are going to affect your ability of what you have to do. If you have a bad outfielder to your, you know, to on the, on your one side, you're going to have to shadow a little bit that way. Um, So I broke these down by units as well. Um, That was just something that I wanted to make sure that if I, was to create some sort of metric that looked at outfield defense. I wanted to break it down by who were the three guys out in the field at the time. And do you separate that then? So a lot of teams have obviously a fourth outfielder that they sub in. You have um, changes made all the time. You don't know. You're not always running the same three guys out there, right? How is that accounted for in your stat? So I have every single unit that was ever put on like including you know. the ones that use nelson cruz in the yep. you have that <laughs> if if a guy was thrown out there for one play i have that in my data right now just you know at a fluke if they had to put a pitcher out in the outfield you know mm-hmm. that then that is showing up in my data i have everyone's name out in here um and for uh, one of the things that i you know noticed and and uh found interesting was like Cleveland last year did, yeah. you know, the uh, sort of unexpected move of putting Jason Kipnis in center field, yeah. um, which, you know, I think he was an outfielder coming up, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, or at in least college, did a little yeah. bit of both. Yeah, um, but hadn't hadn't played in a long time, but they flanked him with two sort of plus or at least you know regarded as plus defenders with Austin Jank or Austin Jackson and uh, Abraham Almonte and occasionally Jose Ramirez um, which is certainly something that we're interested in uh, now as Mariners fans watching D Gordon a different second baseman with in- inarguably better athleticism than Jason Kipnis uh, <laughs> sort of make that transition uh, as well yeah, you know, I, I think that's a little bit of apples and oranges. I, I, and I know yeah. that, that that's what all Mariners fans are hoping. Uh, I do think that – so the, the the thing that I wanted to address with Kipnis, so what was funny about this, and I like I mentioned the Hardball Times article that I wrote, that it was so focusing on you need outfield defense to win a championship. <laughs> it is your X factor. And then the Houston Astros go and win the World Series. And by these numbers that I'm running that I just wrote an article about, they were the absolute worst outfield in the league last year. Yeah. Uh, and the Indians were very low as well. The Indians were the team that I picked to win the World Series last year. So, 
Um, and, and of course, they had the best. Uh, they had the best record in the league, right? Uh, mm. Or yes. no, in the yeah. American or, League? Yeah, definitely in the American. Yeah. So, um, you know, so what I did kind of, of course, my, you know, uh, I had to ask myself, what in the world did I miss here? Um, And I think that my explanation for that is if you have a pitching staff that is going to (laughs) not allow many balls hit the outfield, (laughs) then you don't necessarily need a great outfield. Yeah. And what the Astros are doing is, is, is absolutely ridiculous. You know, bringing in Garrett Cole. Now they have another guy that's 20... I think, you know, 20% plus strikeout guy uh, as far as, you know, per plate appearance. Mm-hmm. They're they're just not letting balls get hit out there. And, of course, they have a bunch of ground ball guys. Of course, Keuchel is a huge ground ball guy. Mm-hmm. We can see their strategy is strikeout ground ball guy. Let's put a bunch of offensive guys, uh, you know, offense-heavy guys in the outfield. And we don't necessarily have to worry about defense because our pitching staff's not going to allow that many balls out there. And that was kind of, I think, and I, I think Francona actually said this directly when he wanted to put Kipnis in center field was, look, not a lot of balls go out there in center field. <laughs> what does he have to do? Yeah. So it's the the little league strategy of of outfield to get your good hitter. <laughs> so now we're seeing kind of uh, the comparison here. You know, the Astros and Indians that have a bunch of strikeout guys, they don't necessarily have to. And I'm not even saying – I think they do have, you know, fourth outfielders that are probably a little bit more defense-metric-minded. Uh, and even the Astros had Jake Marisnik, uh, who got hurt and was out for the entire postseason, who is a very good defender. So I think mm-hmm. that, of course, obviously affected the numbers a lot. But when the Astros do have to make their decision of setting their lineup every day, maybe you don't put in uh, Jake Marisnik. You do put in three offense guys in the outfield because Justin Verlander's pitching and he's going to strike out 12 guys. Um, whereas the Mariners, you know, they don't have the you know strikeout heavy guys outside of Paxton, so you do want to make sure that you do have the right outfield out there that's going to have to be running around a lot to to be tracking down these fly balls. You have some words of comfort for uh, Mariners fans regarding Cole, though, right? The um, after that trade was made, <laughs> pretty yes. much everyone re- regarded that as a huge coup for the Astros, especially considering what they gave up. They did not have to part with any of their top prospects. Um, but you see, perhaps maybe going back to your barrel stat, um, yeah. may- maybe not the best fit for that teeny tiny ballpark. So just as we addressed in the Mariners, you can't catch the ball if it's hit out of the park. And <laughs> Garrett Cole had uh, 31 home runs last season in Pittsburgh, which is pretty spacious. Uh, mm-hmm. Minute Maid is not spacious at all. It's very tiny. Uh, I think I counted. I I tweeted out a graphic of all of the home runs Garrett Cole allowed and overlaid it on Minute Maid Park. Uh, I think it was, it was every fly ball allowed. And uh, there were about seven fly balls that would have left Minute Maid that didn't leave um, P- well they didn't leave whatever park he was in yeah. whether it was PNC or you know a, a road road park so if he allowed those hits at Minute Maid those would have been more home runs and he would have been pushing 40 and so I mean of course there are there's a, a lot of uh, other people that are reasoning that the Astros pitching staff is going to help Garrett Cole and have him pitching more breaking balls because that's what the Astros did a lot last season and that should help Garrett Cole but if he were to have the same season that he had in 2017, next season with the Astros, uh, I don't think the Astros are going to be very happy. But he's probably only going to be their number four, number five yeah. pitcher, maybe. I mean, it's ridiculous <laughs> yeah. the, the amount of depth they have. And that's not even clowning Brad Peacock and Colin McHugh, who are, again, strikeout 
non-fly ball guys that that's what the Astros just have so much strength in. And a point that I I uh, mentioned in the article is that these guys don't grow on trees. These are the f- tough guys to find. You know, the guys that the Astros have mm-hmm. hoarded all of them. Um, yeah. I think I wrote that there was... <laughs> There were like 72 pitchers, I want to say, that were like over 21%, which was about was was the average strikeout rate. Uh, the Astros have six, I think. So if you're saying 72, Jeez. that's about two a team, and the Astros have six just on their team alone, and that's just starting pitchers. I mean, that's ridiculous, and obviously there's not enough to go around. <laughs> yeah. We have none. <laughs> we got packs. <laughs> and... Yeah. Yeah. Um, we got some questions, so to go back, flip back to outfield defense for a little bit. Um, defensive metrics, you know, definitely something that I think are under fire a little when we talk about the advanced stats. Um, and we did get a question from one of our staff writers, Isabel Manassian, about um, kind of the difficulty in assessing outfield stats. Are there any that you or defensive metrics are there any defensive metrics that you think are particularly good slash particularly unreliable what do you look at and what kind of went into your decision to um not look at things like range when you were just pure whether the ball was caught or not Right. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, the ones that we had for a long time and a long time now is what a decade is, you know, UZR <laughs> and DRS. You know, they they they're both fine and I I will glance at them uh you know, all the time when I'm looking at players and I, I wanted to see something. I think that those both of those metrics are very player oriented. Um, you know, you can of course pull it up on Fangraphs um but per team, but I don't think that that's what the metric was created for. They do want to just look at the individual, but when you're looking at just the individual, those stats were made. They didn't have the starting position for those outfielders, so it's kind of based off of where a normal outfielder would be starting, you know, which is, I think, probably just mm. straight away, you know. And so then they're looking at how. So, consideration the shift that. No, the no, not at all. Shift in the age of shifting. Okay. Yeah, and then, you know, DRS. Um, really uh, you know has a large part um impacted by their the outfielder's arm um which of course is a big part of being an outfielder i just you know those stuff that i've been looking at is just catching the ball uh the arm having an arm is great and it's a plus um you know and it certainly does have an impact on you know keeping a runner from advancing that extra base it's just really hard to judge based on the data that we have right now. So, but with, with that, what I wanted to mention is that StatCast is doing things all the time and they're going to come out with more and more stuff. Um, they came out with two pretty cool defensive metrics last season in uh, catch probability, which was the one through five stars, um, which is cool. And we could kind of see, you know, how often that specific catch is made. If it's only made 10% of the time, then that's an, obviously an exceptional catch. Uh, and then they did outs above average, which kind of just extrapolates that into how many outs each outfielder saved. Um, you know, there, there's, there's stuff that I think people might just accept that that is including that I know that is not all the way there, which includes, you know, wall balls. You know, if an outfielder is running up next to a wall, that's going to influence mm-hmm. their range factor. It's going to 
give you know make it a detriment. You know, uh, Andrew Benintendi had really uh, poor statistics as far as these two stack ass metrics that I mentioned, but he's playing in front of the Green Monster. Green Monster, <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you know, the, if a ball is technically in his range, quote unquote. And there's a giant wall behind him. It's obviously a lot more difficult to, to 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 make. And so, you know, one of the things that I did with this catch percentage stuff is I looked at home versus road, and I can see that I can just separate what Andrew Benintendi did on the road and see what his true measurements are, taking away that green monster. Um, that's another thing. You know, the the two men- the two stats are great, like I mentioned on Statcast, but you can't break them down in any way. Um, as far as home road, um, you know, even by month, you know, stuff like that. And the one thing that I'm going to drill again is you, you can't look at what, who, who was playing next to him, which I do think has such strong importance. And, you know, none of those statistics, UZR, DRS, none of them address who is the entire outfield unit. You can't Mm. break it down by that anywhere. So I figured why, why not me? Well, um, Talk to us a little bit about, as you were doing that outfield unit work, um, I believe the Mariners showed up pretty well in that. Um, So talk to us a little bit about what you think is... So that's the trio of Gamble, Dyson, Hanniger? Uh, No, no, Heredia, Heredia. Dyson. Heredia, 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 Dyson, Dyson, and Gamble. Heredia, Dyson, Gamble. What? Um, how did they come out in your rankings, and what do you? What? What so do the, the numbers f- tell you? Yeah, the first article I wrote was just the basics. Basically, how many times did a, was a ball hit to the outfield, and how many times was it caught? And I looked at uh, minimum two hundred chances, which again is is two hundred balls hit out to them. And that trio that you mentioned, and I, of course, I think I DM'd you immediately when I found this because I knew it would excite you, Kate. <laughs> I they were uh, six, 65%. Um, so, you know, two out of every three balls are caught by that unit. Um, and I know that that unit is probably going to be no more, so it probably doesn't mean anything to people moving forward. But maybe D can fit in, you know, seamlessly for Jared. I don't know. But... Um, other things that popped out, I know I mentioned in the first article, like, uh, and this, of course, hits home for you guys in your division, was uh, the Mike Trout numbers were interesting as far as it, units that replaced Trout, especially because, obviously, he missed a bunch of time last year, did better without Trout. Uh, I don't know if that means more about Trout or more about Cameron Mabin, who is mm. sitting on the free agency right now without a job, which I find kind of interesting because someone could probably get him very cheaply. And was waived last year. I, like that, the whole treatment of Cameron Maben last year was bizarre to me. Yes, uh, I can't believe the Astros got him for free, especially because yep. I mentioned the Marisnik injury. That was exactly what they needed last year. Yeah. It was an outfield fourth outfielder. Um, yeah. That was bizarre. Absolutely. I can't uh, believe right the Giants didn't jump on him this off season and put him in their outfield because wouldn't he be a huge boon to them? Maybe it can still. Ha- I I totally agree, yep. Kate. I I think. Uh, you know, Jared Dyson or Cameron Mabin would fit perfectly, and especially because they've already said McCutcheon's okay with playing a, a corner outfield. Who who <laughs> had the worst um, outfield unit? Who, who was really who was really kind of low on the? It, it was the Giants. <laughs> it, uh, the oh, yeah. Giants trio. 
I mentioned about Samarja. This is what I'm talking about. Uh, Jarrett Parker, Denard Span, and Hunter Pence Oof. was um, fifty. Uh, oh no, sorry, I have the wrong one. Uh, Austin Slater, Denard Span, and Hunter Pence were fifty-two percent. And yes. the Mariners were the leaders at sixty-five. Sixty-five. Wow. MLB that... average was fifty-seven. So, wow. yeah, and those are that... two like fairly comparable in terms of spaciousness outfields usually right like or i know i know the giants have a weird weirder angles for sure um but in terms of sort of run suppression at least prior to last year or prior to the last couple years maybe so here's what i got for you john you know uh what i i started kind of crunching numbers even further and trying to see like how far i can push this data and what i can get out of it but what i i i created a park factor Mm -hmm. metric based off of this data so just looking at how road teams fared at you know whatever stadium um for example the the at um safeco road teams caught 60 percent of balls um of these balls so and Giants, uh, AT and T was fifty six percent. Coors is the worst, 50 percent, and that's because Coors wow. is so yeah. so big. Yeah, um, road teams only caught yeah fifty percent. So it was a coin flip basically if you're going to wow. catch that ball or not. That's crazy. Um, I know Casey. We talked a little bit too about another factor at Safeco, which is its ability to uh, deaden extra base hits. Specifically, its ability to suppress triples. Was that? Did we talk about this? I feel. Yeah, like yeah, we. we I, I, yeah, I tweeted you guys out that it was. It was. I think. Yeah, it was Coors that allowed the most um, runners to score from first on a double. What it was. What I think was the metric that I pulled, and Safeco was the lowest percentage of that. Now that's. Of course, I think it's going to be, you know, influenced by the Mariners' outfield. And, again, they get to balls quickly, so they're going to prevent runners from scoring from first on a double uh, Mm -hmm. the most. But I I think that there is a park factor indeed as well because I think that's why we see on the flip end uh, what Coors does uh, in the reverse way. And related to that, um, we also talked about the flip side of that with runners who take the extra base or who are able to maybe – Stretch a double. What did you call that one again? So I wrote an article a month or two ago about, I call it risk versus reward. Risk versus reward. That's right. <laughs> and yeah, I had this cool little chart that, that plotted every team um, in their risk versus reward. And how I defined those were the risk segment was how often the team got thrown out on the bases, which I love to always call tooth plans, uh, thrown out on the bases, like a complete, uh, like a nincompoop. Nincompoop, um, there we go. <laughs> and, uh, but then the reward was how often teams go from first to third on a single or score from second on a single. Uh, that was the two areas that I looked at. And so I basically said that if you are in – you know, a high risk, high reward. Uh, if you are a high risk, high reward team, at least you're getting something out of it. You're obviously <laughs> really aggressive on the bases. Boston Red Sox. Uh, I know that I heard all throughout the season on my Twitter feed from Boston Red Sox fans uh. that they were so sick of their players getting thrown out on the bases, but they got such a great reward though out of um, you know they were running from they were going from first to third more often than any other team. They were scoring from second huh. on a single more than any other team. So. 
Clearly, that team strategy on the base pass was to just be as aggressive as possible. We'll take the outs because we're going to overcome that with how many bases, how many extra bases we're getting. Mm-hmm. You have to have a certain kind of team for that too, right? Like the Mariners with uh, their crew of plotters are not going to be well served to take on that kind of a strategy. I know that that's something we talked about. That yeah, because you know. You're going to have a Nelson Cruz in front of you on the base paths. You're not going to be able to often get that extra base um, and, and, you know, other guys in the team. Yeah, the, obviously, Red, if you're comparing the athleticism with especially the 2017 version of the Boston Red Sox, I think, yeah, you know, even them taking Ortiz out of the lineup, they knew that they had to do something else, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's kind of where they made up for the loss of power on that team. Who is the best uh, on the Mariners at taking the extra base? Who is our so getting back to that risk reward? Let's talk about where the Mariners fell on that quadrant. Did we yes. explain all the all the parts of the quad? We should probably explain the rest of the quadrant so people who haven't read it can kind of picture it. Yeah, so low risk, low reward would mean that you're not <laughs> you're not getting thrown on the bases, but you're not really often advancing that extra base. Um, so I would not necessarily say that's a positive or a negative. If you are getting thrown out a lot on the bases and you are not advancing a base very often, that's the worst place you can be. Who who, uh, who live who hangs out around there? Who's who's hanging out at that? <laughs> so uh, the Tigers, the Phillies, uh, the Yankees. Um, the Yankees, Yankees. surprisingly were uh, not a great team on the base pass. That one hmm. kind of surprised me a little bit. Um, well, they don't have. They've got. I mean, Judge is n- not super fast athletic though you know you look at like somebody like a chris bryan who's you know really really tall guy but he's a great base runner um he really uses his athleticism i'm probably just stereotyping judge based on and you know the man doesn't often have to race around the the bases because He's just because, hit yeah, the ball he's out. Getting to trot. He's either yeah, he's doing a trot or he's walking back to the dugout after striking out. He did walk a lot though, so uh, especially there towards the end, that would be interesting to look at. Sanchez, I guess Sanchez is not very fast, um, and then they had some old guys too, so I guess that makes sense. Yeah, Chase Headley and uh, guys like that. You know, Frazier? even to, to, to uh, Todd Frazier for a while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Mariners were. Fairly neutral. They were a little bit in that bottom right section, the the bad section. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's because they have some good and some bad. Um, and I, I think that's kind of just where it kind of comes out in the wash. Um, the other section, though, is um, low risk or yeah, low risk, high reward. Um, that's the best place you can be. So low risk, <laughs> high reward is you're not getting thrown on the bases and you're often taking the extra base. Uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks were the best team by far really? in this metric. Yeah. Um, you know, they got a, a very athletic outfield, AJ Pollock, David Peralta. I mean, I mean, Paul Goldschmidt is an excellent base runner. You think of him as this power hitter, this average hitter, but he is a fantastic base runner as well, especially for first baseman. Uh, and then the Dodgers as well. Uh, Dodgers have athletic catchers as well. Um, that's a big thing. Um, you know, and, and a pretty athletic team. You don't see a lot of plotters on that team, especially they didn't have Adrian Gonzalez last year. Uh, Chase Utley played sparingly. So the Diamondbacks and the Dodgers, those were the two uh, best base running teams, according to my study here. Interesting. Well, the Mariners were pretty poor on the base paths last year. I think no one, anyone will tell you that. And that in the 
off-season conversations has been a point of emphasis. Service has talked about, uh, DePoto has talked about, we have to get better on the base paths, um, which is tough because they only have so much of a ceiling. You know, Seager is not going, never going to be fast. Cruz, Cano, uh, Zanino is slow. You know, you've got a lot. Healy is very slow. Um, all that speed is going to have to come from the outfield and Segura, essentially. Who was the best? Who, who who runs well on the Mariners, according to the research that you did? So Mitch Hanniger was the guy to try to jump off the page here. He only got thrown on the bases three times last season. Um, you know, obviously very, very good. Uh, he went from first to third, seven of 18 opportunities, which is 39%. Average was about 29%. Oh, wow. And uh, he scored from second um, on a single nine out of 17 times, about 53%. That's a little bit below average, but um, the first to third was what he does uh, very, very good. Another guy that does first to third very well was Ben Gamble, 14 of 28 times. 50%, and I mentioned the average was 29%. So, wow. really good. But, 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 Ben Gamble got thrown <laughs> out of the bases 10 times. So, that's <laughs> yes. the high risk, high reward segment that I'm talking about, though. That, that Boston Red Sox segment that, yeah, you're going to be aggressive. You kind of want to obviously see the outs on the bases get put down a little bit, but he, clearly he's being aggressive. Hmm. That's so, interesting, I'm, though. I would not have thought of Hanager as one of our better base runners off the top of my head. So, that's I I have a, a curiosity and does not need an answer right now. But just as we've talked about, like you're limited when you're running behind, uh, like if if you're hitting behind Cruz or Cano, they had they were a group of dudes that had a lot of loud singles, mm-hmm. um, and I I can't help but wonder if Hanniger, who hit second for a lot of the year, was maybe the beneficiary of a lot of you know, line drives into the gap by canoe or by Cano or Cruz, who you know saw the ball going and said, yeah. "I, th- you know, I think one base, one base is enough for me <laughs> on this one." Uh, but that is that is very interesting because you know, as as Kate said, you know, and, and it it's been funny to look, especially you know, I remember when we uh, when the sprint speed uh, numbers sort of came out, uh, it was very exciting and interesting to look at and see like. Oh, Taylor Motter is this, you know, has the same average spin speed as Kyle Seeger, but Taylor Motter is, you know, stealing 10, 15 bases. Kyle Seeger goes to bed at night dreaming of his, you know, one stolen base <laughs> a year that he gets. You know, he, he plans for it every year. Uh, you know, and, and so I, I guess finding, finding these little ways because, you know, and, and that's, I, I guess, what I think. I find very interesting about the stuff you do, Casey, um, is that, you know, we're pretty good at measuring offensive production. I think it's fair to say whether, you know, there's a lot that we can refine and definitely, you know, seeing who maybe is getting unlucky, but it's still, you know, there's still so much nuance and uncertainty about what really is good defensive production and what is good base running and, and, uh, you know, the, these types of things, I think, are um, you know really interesting, and it's fun to see. You know, it, it was neat to see someone, I guess, just taking these these numbers and saying, "Well, I'm I'm going to make a metric out of this." You know, I I you know, seeing seeing the sort of pop, up, you know, the 
the ways that new uh, analytics and new new ways of measurement can pop up has been a really neat thing. Um, and I like everything uh, you do, Casey. Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I actually I have a, a, a funny anecdote here. The reason, kind of, why I have done this, why I want to learn more about outfield defense and measure it and base running and stuff, is because Robin Ventura destroyed like my love of baseball for. Oh quite a long period of time when he managed this team because because i mean uh, at least it made me want to learn why the white Sox were so bad because (laughs) i I just watched them i'm like that outfield is a is horrible at what they're doing (laughs) and they got these base running mistakes that you know it just seems like i know this isn't 100 percent true but it feels like outfield defense and well all defense including infield and base running are things that can be coached um, mm-hmm. that you can get a lot out of, you know, these guys are all athletes. I know we talked about, you know, Nelson Cruz is a big guy and everything, and he's not, doesn't have great foot speed, but if you, you can coach him not to get thrown out on the bases because he, he's being coached. There's a first base coach. There's a third base coach. Um, you know, the, the outfield is put in. I, the one thing that I have not mentioned one time throughout the start podcast is I think that even scouting, the opposition and positioning these outfielders is a big portion of, you know, how uh, these metrics can be increased. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, and that's why I look at it by team. I think that that's such a big deal. You know, maybe the Mariners don't have to go completely all out on, you know, having three sub 200 batting average guys in the outfield because if they're being coached up and have these you know athletic guys i think that could be a big key to this d gordon thing if it works is obviously he's not a he's a great hitter and if he is let's say 85 percent of what jared dyson was in center field Mm -hmm. i think you're making up for that that 15 percent with just the bat so mm-hmm. maybe there is that plus minus, and that's got to be something that's on Depoto's mind that he knows that their coaching staff knows where to put these guys. You know, it's going to be mostly the same rotation as last year. That's going to be they, they know how these guys pitch. Um, you know, well, I, I should say if the if the, <laughs> if the rotation stays healthy. Um, yes, but big if. And you know, I think that's so big. Another thing that I am working on that I haven't put into writing yet is, I, well, I guess I tweeted a couple times yesterday, but is looking at each individual pitcher and how what outfielders that they had behind them and how well they did and to see if I can find trends like why is whatever manager Scott Service playing this outfield trio behind Felix Hernandez and not behind James Paxton mm-hmm. there's got to be a rhyme and reason and that's kind of my next project that I'm working on with this data I'm I'm looking now because I, I you know, when I when I think of the White Sox, I think of Paul Konerko, I think of, you know, Frank Thomas, and and I think of you know those those sort of really strong uh, mid two thousands teams. Um, but you did, you guys did really have a stretch where it was like Adam Dunn and Alex Rios as like the you know outfield out there. So I I can see how that would be a little bit grim. Even Alvisel Garcia was just oh yeah so bad out there. But <laughs> but last but last year he was great. What was different? There was a different manager. Now I'm not saying that it's a one plus one equals two thing here, but there's something there. Yeah, 
he's being coached differently. Absolutely, he's being coached differently. It's a different coach. But uh, is that all the difference in the world? I don't know. I mean, he said he mm-hmm. only ate chicken all off season, so maybe that's it. But <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. I, 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 but I do think that there is something to how teams are managed, especially in these areas that I've been looking at. Yeah. I will always well, remember uh, the, the, my my um, image of oh, this is not the same Mariners defense it used to outfield defense it used to be was uh, Robinson Cano early in the 2016 season, I think it was, just casually ranging back trying to catch a ball that was in shallow right field that I'm used to. I was used to watching Robinson Cano catch that ball because Seth Smith wasn't running in to catch that ball. (laughs) And all of a sudden he looked behind him and uh, I forget who was playing right field. Uh, Could have been Hanniger or... Well, this was 2016. I guess already. I think oh, this in 2016. Was 2016, yeah. Um, because I think by 2017, Cano had learned he didn't have to <laughs> go into shallow right field anymore <laughs> and make the cat. Like, it just it takes so much stress. And that's why I think what I'm really interested in the work that you do is looking at things as, as a unit, not just looking at the player by himself, but how he how each of the players who are on the field interact with and affect each other. Yeah, so I'm hoping I can do it throughout the season, you know, in real time and kind of spot these trends as we go in 2018. That's kind of the where I want to go with this. Fantastic. Well, if you don't follow Casey on Twitter, you definitely should. Uh, Casey, give the people your Twitter handle. At Casey Boguslaw. Pretty pretty basic, pretty easy. B-O-G-U-S-L-A-W, spelled like it sounds. I I tried out a lot of exotic pronunciations. (laughs) None of them were right. Bogus law. Um, well, maybe what we, could we could we answer a few questions before? Can we keep you for a couple minutes? Absolutely. Ask a few questions because uh, I did call for questions. We got a fair number about Chicago. Not all of them that I understand. <laughs> Some weird ones, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's Suizo. <laughs> we'll skip that one. But um, but I do feel like uh, our friend Peter at HD Robot just came right at you with uh, why is Chicago deep dish pizza so bad? Ouch. I mean, I agree and he's right, but ouch. Uh, This is probably going to get me kicked out of the city, but I'm not a huge deep dish fan. That's fine. That's that's as it should be. I would prefer you know, crust. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. fine once in a while. uh, We get Giordano's quite a bit at the Bogusla household and we do go for a deep dish, you know, stuffed sausage and spinach, and it's very, very good. But uh, I like my pizza kind of on the go. Uh, you know, <laughs> deep dish, you kind of got to go the fork and knife, and it's kind of this whole meal thing. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no, nah, I, I like my pizza with a beer in the other hand, and uh, that's how, yeah. Like any good American. You're, good. Correct you're answer. Both, you're, both, you're both breaking my heart. My, <laughs> my mom's whole family is from Barrington, Illinois, and oh, we okay. they'll – once a year order Giordano's to be like shipped out here and it's sort of a big to do and I oh nope Giordano's that's fine good. no accounting for taste <laughs> 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 all right the next one comes from Anthony Davis at Jolly Red Giant 93 and Anthony wants this is a good one for you Casey Anthony wants to know who will make the playoffs more in the next seven years the White Sox or the Cubs in the next seven, seven years. years yeah Oh, that is a good question. It, it, I've was, I've been thinking about it since he asked it, and uh, I'm not sure oh, I have a man. good answer. 
Yeah, I I gotta stick. I, I've got, I've talked way too much about the Cubs this podcast. I'm going with the White Sox. I like everything about their rebuild. Uh, I know you guys probably uh, don't follow uh, all of the Lewis Robert uh, updates. Oh yes, that... how his last name is pronounced? <laughs> uh, yeah, I have me. no do idea. You know, do you know nothing about me? Like obviously, where name pronunciation name pronunciation Twitter is my my home. It's so up in the air how to pronounce his name. No, it's uh, not. Was... It's Robert. They asked his dad. <laughs> <laughs> we well, gotta... <laughs> I, I listened to the, the White Sox podcast today, which is by uh, the NBC sports guys, and uh, they had uh, Nikki Delmonico on. And they're at they're at this hitters camp right now in Arizona. All of the like the the young guys, the young hitters are are down in Arizona, and they asked him how to pronounce his, his teammate's name, and he said, I still don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, th- th- uh, yeah, there is that. I mean, it's a slow off-season. I feel like we yeah. need we need a little bit of a controversy. So I was disappointed <laughs> when I saw the definitive answer, and we can't continue to, like, trawl through this because Lord knows there's nothing else going on. So. <sighs> but, but back to the battle yes. against the Cubs, I really feel like the window is – closing at least slowly on the Cubs. Maybe they yeah. get Bryce Harper and totally shut me up. But the pitching is a problem over there and maybe they get you Darvish and shut me up. But um I feel like the White Sox could be making the playoffs in twenty nineteen and if they follow the blueprint, what I love about you guys are not gonna like me saying this, what of what the Astros are doing is they just kind of <laughs> it, it doesn't look like their window's ever gonna close because they just have loads and loads of depth in the minor leagues and I think that's that's the real trick. You know, I don't think the Cubs have done that as much because they move so many of their top prospects to supplant, you know, the big league talent. The Astros haven't had to do that yet. And it just looks like this never ending train of success. And I hope that's what Rick Hahn is watching and he wants to do with the White Sox. So I hope they make the playoffs the next six out of seven years, hopefully. <laughs> One thing I will say is I think the Astros system is they have their few top top prospects left. But other than that, they have a lot of guys who are like uh, interesting, but not necessarily super highly regarded. Um, I'm not totally sold on the Astros system going forward. Um, And I feel similarly about the Cubs. That's why I, too, would come down, I think, on on the side of believing in the White Sox because they have just stocked that farm up with. Um, on both sides of the ball, too. You know, you have yep. Kopech and um, who else am I thinking of? Jimenez? Eloy Eli Jimenez? Eloy Jimenez. Jimenez is yeah. the outfielder, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that, there's some, some scare. And so just supplant that with some good drafting. And, um, you know, the other thing is the Astros had an opportunity to draft in a way that you can't. I don't think the Ast- what the Astros did is repeatable anymore. Um, beyond the At years least in and the years same and, way. and tanking, right? You don't, you just don't have the same access to all the draft picks that they had. So, uh, this is the story that I tell myself at night <laughs> when I <laughs> when I try uh, to think about a potential path to the Mariners ever having a shot at the AL West. The White Sox <laughs> situation was so weird, just because they traded these incredible guys at their peak with great contracts that. They they were always going to bring in huge packages for those guys, mm-hmm. but you don't see it very often because how would you? It it's so mm-hmm. weird that they were such stars and scrubs, and there are still there's still a lot of debate in in White Sox fandom on whether they should have just kept that core and and paid for free agents to help supplant it, which certainly could have worked, 
They decided to go the other way, but I don't think a lot of teams would do that, so I don't know if that's very repeatable. And of yeah. course, the Cubs have traded uh, Daniel Vogelback off of their <laughs> out of their system, which is a, a killing blow to them. Uh, we got a question from David asking, "Is it time to trade him?" John, I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you handle that. T- a question from who? Uh, David at five oh nine fitted wants to know if we should trade Daniel Vogelback for pitching. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you meant trade him. Sorry. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't I know. Mean, what's kind of what's his what's his uh, uh, potential return? I think that's <laughs> about the return we could get for Vogelback at this point. Unfortunately, yeah. that's um, it, yeah. It, it. I think you you probably have to trade him, um, if only because there's you know Mike Ford or Ryan Healy are going to you know, command an opening day spot. The Mariners don't get to keep Mike Ford if they don't put him on the 25 man or, at or the work out start some of kind year. of a deal yeah. with the Yankees, which I think that's might, true, but Mitch. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if they do that, then, you know, maybe, but, but even then it's especially, you know, you have three guys, two of whom are left-handed hitting first base only great plate discipline, not a lot of versatility, haven't quite shown the, you know, translated raw power into game power guys. Like, Mike Ford is essentially a lower pedigree, <laughs> higher production Daniel Vogelbach, yeah. you know, so... Yeah, at this yeah. point, I think it's just a... It's a for-the-player's-own good. Yeah. I, yeah. I, think, I think they move him maybe along with something else in a, in a future deal at some point. All right, next question. To get back to outfield defense a little, Tim McPhail at Tim Digsit wants to know how long we think the D. Gordon experience will last. So, um, Casey, kind of given what you have looked at with outfielder range and units um, and maybe even hearkening back to the idea of the Kipnis experiment where you can if you flank a guy with strong defenders what what's your what's your gut feeling or what's your prediction on how D Gordon translates to an outfielder it's bold but I think maybe what could happen I think at the worst maybe is that what I mentioned about Dexter Fowler and the 2016 Cubs, that he was just helped out by the two guys on both of his sides. And maybe that can maybe, you know, they're still going to have two out of three outfielders that are very, very good at outfield deep, probably regardless of what happens next season. And if D Gordon is only average, I think that he, they can lift him up uh, to above average, but the athletic ability is certainly there. I think DePoto definitely knows what he's doing and I, I think that he knows that the risk that he was taking was certainly mm-hmm. measured to some degree and I, I think that you know we might be seeing this a little bit more maybe de- this is going to start a trend that we're going to take these athletic young infielders that come up you know Tim Anderson for example in the White Sox you know if they moved him into the center field because he is so athletic maybe that is something that we're going to start to see uh Ozzie Albies on the um Atlanta Braves, who's a second baseman right now, I know was one of the fastest guys on sprint speed, which John mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe the Braves decide to move him to the outfield after seeing what the Mariners are doing with D. Gordon. If this works, it could really affect baseball, yeah. and I think that it could work. Especially with the like the expansion of bullpens, you know, you need to find versatility anywhere you can. So yep. the you know, I think the you know, and we've seen in the last few title teams, you know teams 
those teams have had versatile units, versatile players. They've had a Marwin Gonzalez. They've had a Ben Sobrist. Chris Chris Taylor. Taylor. Yeah, 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 we know him. (laughs) Yeah, I forgot about that. Mm, That must be nice. (laughs) No, but yeah, but that's you know I think I think that's a a good point about the the way that that could become a trend. I think that would be very fun to see. Um, one more question from James Roberts at Junkball Pitchin. So with Dr. Lorena Martin now part of the organization and the goal of trying to maintain health, should the Mariners be looking at a permanent six-man rotation? Uh, is there any reason to believe that that would help our chances? Um, so maybe given... <laughs> If that six-man rotation includes Ariel Miranda and his extremely red barrel fit, um, maybe that won't help as much. But uh, what are what are your thoughts on the on and not just the Mariners, but maybe across baseball? We're looking at obviously the Angels are going to have to do that to make room for Otani. So <laughs> we're just bringing I'm, up all I'm, the fun stuff. Yeah, this is just a sad podcast. <laughs> <laughs> They're Welcome all sad. to Look Hell. They're, they're yeah, all no. sad podcasts. Casey. <laughs> 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 oh. um, I'm I'm mostly against six man rotations. What I would prefer a team to do, especially my Chicago White Sox, are going to have hopefully this vast amount of starting pitching in a couple years here is use that guy as the first guy out of the bullpen, the long relief guy, and you know save your starting pitcher if he does get into a situation that is uh, precarious. I'd much rather my, you know, pitching staff be um, situated that way. Um, take one of those guys that can maybe is a little bit better at pitching out of the stretch, um, and somebody that you'd probably want to pitch only a couple innings, so he can maybe up that fastball a couple miles per hour, and uh, just do it that way. I'd I'd rather that way. And how are the Mariners going to have a six-man rotation? They can't keep five pitchers healthy. Well, what they've talked about, first of all, correct. It is a good question. Um, I think one of their points has been that Felix Hernandez in particular has had so many physical issues that he's going to need extra days off. And just because they travel so often that, uh, you know, so and have such a much greater travel schedule than any other team in baseball that – the extra rest, even if it's putting in a inferior pitcher talent wise might be beneficial just to, you know, get a little bit of extra rest. I like that they're being creative. Um, I doubt that we see it in, you know, I think if they've got no Tawny, then that's a different, you know, situation. Um, but as it is, I, I would like to see them be creative in their, uh, pitcher usage and you know we've talked a lot about things the astros are doing on this podcast but one of the things that we've seen is they the astros have worked a lot of sort of tandem starts in their uh minor leagues and essentially getting you know maximizing the uh effort and the uh production that you're getting from maybe a lesser talent um the mariners have a lot of fifth or sixth starters mm-hmm. uh, talent-wise. But, you know, if you have a guy like Max Posey or Marco Gonzalez who first four innings usually is fine and really hits a huge wall that third time through the order. Um, Erasmus Ramirez is a 
similar kind of guy usually. Uh, you know, I think there's beneficial. You you can get more benefit, I guess, out of just having a lot of guys with greater stamina who can who can help maximize those five starts uh, than you would out of six. But that yeah. that I think there's still creativity worth worth working with. All right. Well, Casey, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for um, coming on with us. And why don't we put in one more pitch for where people can find your work, how they can read your work, and um, where they can follow you on all the various social channels. Sure. Forwardmile.com is where I'm going to be posting all of the majority of my stuff. Uh, you can find me on Medium at Casey Bogoslaw, and you can find me on Twitter at Casey Bogoslaw as well. So, and follow uh, at MLB Barrel Alert as well for um, <laughs> for instant barrel updates when the uh, 2018 season begins. Which will... not not run by an intern frantically watching all of Aaron Judge's at bats anymore. All automated. We just sit back and watch watch the profits. <laughs> yeah, like all sports step, writing. Step five. Wow, you have to explain it. <laughs> you made it to step three, profit to me oh. off air. All right, thanks again, Casey. Thank you for those to those of you who sent in questions, and we will talk to you guys next week. <laughs>